Hello and welcome to London Live. It is Wednesday, April 10th, 2019. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs once again. Mike's traveling with the London Knights today, although you will hear him on this program. We will grab him before he leaves for Guelph for today's show. The Knights lead the Storm three games to none in their second round series. It's worth noting... The Knights have never blown a 3-0 lead in a playoff series during the Hunter era. Based on how the series has gone, you've got to think London will win again today. The Storm have just looked like a defeated bunch. I thought the series was going to be close, possibly six or seven games, but it's been anything but so far. You can hear tonight's game on 980 CFPL starting at 6.30 with the pregame. Puck drop will be at 7 o'clock. So... We will talk about the Knights on the show today, and you will hear them on the radio tonight. We've got a busy show for you today. Before the half hour is out, we'll talk about cashless businesses. It's a trend we're seeing more and more around the world. We now have our first cashless business in London. I'll save that for the next segment. But we'll be talking to Rod Duclos from Ivy at Western. It should be an interesting conversation. We will talk about London's real estate market this hour. We'll talk about real estate in general and buying a home in general. We'll talk about uh, a new poll that came out that indicates home buyers think the market is evenly split between buyers and sellers. Is that the case? We'll discuss that on the program. Next hour, we'll talk to Annie Kidder from People for Education about a report they released this week on technology in Ontario's education system. It touched upon a number of themes, e-learning, cell phones in classrooms, and the role of technology in the educational system. It's an interesting report and worthy of your time. We'll also talk to Dr. Nadia Alam from the Ontario Medical Association. They have started a new online campaign to combat misinformation about vaccines. They are taking a non-confrontational approach to this. Will it be successful? Time will tell. We'll talk about organ donation. April is Be a Donor Month, and we'll discuss the London Knights. So, as I said, it's a busy show. Up first, something pretty cool happened earlier today. For the first time, we saw a picture of a black hole. Astronomers have taken the first ever image of a black hole, and it's located in a distant galaxy. It measures 40 billion kilometers across. That is 3 million times the size of the Earth, and it has been described by scientists as, quote, a monster. The black hole is 500 million trillion (laughs) kilometers away, and it was photographed by a network of eight telescopes across the world. The image shows an intensely bright ring of fire surrounding a perfectly circular dark hole. The bright halo is caused by superheated gas falling into the hole. The light is brighter than all the billions of other stars in the galaxy combined, which is why it can be seen from so far away. The edge of the dark circle at the center is the point at which the gas enters the black hole, which is an object that has such a large gravitational pull, not even light can escape. The image matches what theoretical physicists have imagined what a black hole would look like. So, what is a black hole? Well, a black hole is a region of space which nothing, not even light, can escape. Despite the name, they are not empty, but instead consist of a huge amount of matter packed densely into a small area, giving it that immense gravitational pull. There is a region of space 
beyond the black hole called the event horizon. This is what they call the point of no return, beyond which it is impossible to escape the gravitational effects of the black hole. Black holes come in different sizes. They are formed when very massive stars collapse at the end of their life cycle. Supermassive black holes are the largest kind growing in mass as they devour matter and radiation and perhaps merging with other black holes. No single telescope is powerful enough to get an image of the black hole. So that's why they had to bring together these network of telescopes from around the world. A team of 200 scientists pointed their telescopes towards this and worked together on this. Amongst that 200 is a Canadian. Avery Broderick is an astrophysicist at the Premier Institute in Waterloo. And the, the details about this are just so cool. So the information they gathered was too much to be sent across the internet. So the data was stored in hundreds of hard drives that were flown to a central processing center in Boston so they could assemble all the information. The team is also imaging uh, the supermassive black hole at the center of its our own galaxy, the Milky Way. Odd as it may sound, that is harder to get an image of just because the Milky Way is 55 million light years away. This is because, for some unknown reason, the ring of fire on the black hole at the heart of our Milky Way is dimmer and uh, and slimmer. I think this is absolutely incredible and I hope you do too. Just the other day, I was talking with a friend about how your brain melts when you try to think about the origins of the universe. If you believe in God, well, and that God created the universe, what happened with God? How was God there? If you don't believe in God and you believe there's, you know, a scientific uh, reason for this, well, Something had to have come from nothing. So whether it's, you know, a scientific reason, whether it's a religious reason, how did something come from nothing? At some point there was nothing. Then there was something. But how did that nothing come from something? It's, I don't know. It's, here we, I'm, I'm having the conversation by myself. It's, it's, it's stuff like this that are so great and wonderful when they come along. People have busy lives. People have more pressing needs than reading about black holes. I get it. But I hope you take some time to read about this because I just think it is so incredibly cool in terms of uh, everything we are learning. We need to pause. We come back. We'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. This is Devin Peacock in for London Live. How often do you pay with cash? How often do you pay with your debit or your credit card? Increasingly, I'm going cashless. It's just easier. There has been a trend around the world where we're seeing businesses decide to go cashless. Sweden is leading the charge on this. Uh, They've stated they'd like to go cashless in a couple years completely for the entire country. There are some restaurants and retail stores in Toronto that have started to go cashless. To my knowledge, there aren't any in London that have gone cashless until now. 
few years ago, Globally Local became Canada's first vegan fast food restaurant. They recently opened a drive through restaurant. They're looking to expand across the country. And now they're going cashless. They've actually been cashless since February, according to a sign outside their store on Dundas Street downtown. I'm all for cashless businesses, but not everyone is. Some local governments in the U.S. have either created laws to ban them or would like to do that. The concern is... And there are a couple ones, but one of the main ones I see is some people view them as discriminatory, that homeless and low-income people are less likely to pay cash, and if your business is cashless, there's a potential problem. There are also people who just don't have a bank account. It is, by the way, 100% legal for businesses to go cashless. Even though it's legal currency, the Bank of Canada says it's not mandatory for Canadian businesses to accept cash. According to the Bank of Canada, retailers don't have to take bills or coins because, quote, both parties must agree on the payment method. Rod Duclos is a professor of marketing at Ivy School of Business. He joins us now to talk about this. Thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me. Cashless businesses are something that... uh, intrigue me. It seems as though this is a growing trend we're seeing around the world, really, both for businesses, but just increasingly consumers seem to be going more cashless. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely happening. It's definitely uh, a trend. Uh, and, and there are definitely pros to that. So there are definitely forces that uh, make this trend uh, more profitable, easier, more convenient. Um, both consumers and businesses actually tend to gain from that. Um, so for, on the business side, uh, you can save time, right? So if you're a small business owner, for instance, uh, it takes time to count all this money. It takes time to go to the bank and deposit it. So all these time savings by going cashless can be reinvested toward maybe hospitality training or toward marketing and promotion activities to grow the business. It's also helpful because it it reduces uh, money being displaced, misplaced, or put plainly maybe stolen. Uh, So businesses tend to to gain from that. They they also tend to lose in some cases. So the the more cashless you go as a business, uh, the harder it becomes to evade taxes, however. So you can see how like some businesses might be slow at uh, taking up this uh, this trend. I can... Um, Yes, go ahead. Yeah, no, I could certainly, I've, I've been reading a lot about this uh, recently, and certainly, I mean, there's, I mean, for me, uh, business not evading taxes is certainly a good thing. I can see why businesses, maybe if you're, uh, you know, a smaller business, you're more mobile, not in the online sense, but you're just trying to get around uh, uh, and, and grow the business, they may not want to go cashless, but uh, I can certainly see why, you know, there are pros and cons of that, but I think I, I interrupted you as you're going to get to some, maybe some of the cons as well as this, or... Yeah, so on the on the consumer side, you can also think of uh, of gains, right? So it's it's more convenient uh, to go cashless. Uh, you don't need to carry cash; like it makes your cash less susceptible to being lost or maybe to being stolen as well. So it's definitely convenient. Um, but consumers tend to lose more. So if, if you look at gains and losses, and on the business side or on the consumer side, I think it's on the consumer side that losses. Uh, are probably the most important, even though they are the least obvious uh, at at first sight. So if you think of privacy, for instance, uh, when you go cashless, um, it becomes much easier to track your purchases. So what exactly that you purchase with what kind of frequencies, 
And then that makes you more susceptible to behavioral segmentation and targeting on the part of, of marketers. Uh, so you lose, you give up privacy. And, um, and another way to look at it is in, in sheer economic terms. Um, there's research that I've done and colleagues of mine have done as well in different labs that look at the, the psychology of money or how the, the physical form of money, the physicality of money, has non-conscious influences on actual behaviors by consumers. So when you spend money, when you buy stuff uh, in cash, uh, it's psychologically more painful to pay in cash than it is to pay through what I call dematerialized money. So Apple Pay and credit cards and the likes, uh, which makes that um, people spend a lot more when they pay in dematerialized money. Uh, it's less painful to pay, and therefore you're much more likely to spend. Uh, so there's been research that shows that when people go to auctions, for instance, and they're either paying in cash or paying through credit cards, they will spend twice as much on the same items than people who are paying in cash. Uh, if you go to the mall and you buy yourself a, a pair of shoes for, let's say, $100, uh, paying in cash makes you m less likely to buy those shoes or to buy cheaper sh shoes than if you are planning to pay with your credit card. That's interesting. So, I, I, it's so, almost yeah. like if you go to the if you're going to the to the casino and you say, "Oh, I'm only going to spend twenty dollars, win or lose." Uh, but if you have, uh, and then once you're out those $20, which is most likely to happen at a casino, uh, right. maybe it's easier to walk away as opposed to the, the alternative. Th that's right. So like uh, for all your listeners, like when they go to casinos, take cash with you and limit yourself to spending your cash. So this invisible force of, of, of money, so the psychological consequences of money, uh, money's physicality, can play against you uh, or for you, depending on, on, the, on the form of, of money that you, are, uh, that you are planning to gamble with. When I've been reading about this, I've also seen some people mention about uh, for, for businesses, restaurants, retail uh, shops that may go cashless, uh, some concerns they raise sometimes is uh, a discriminatory factor in terms of low-income uh, people are less likely to go cashless than maybe high-income, and some of these businesses could be consciously or not um, maybe discriminating against potential customers. Yeah, that's a good point, too. So, in, um, and this is something that we probably um, underestimate. So if you think of countries like Canada, like Western Europe or the U.S., it's a relatively small proportion of the population who gets their wages and cash. It's not trivial, though. It's maybe like anywhere from 10 to 15, 10 to 20 percent at most. And it's not like people will get the entirety of their income in cash. It can be a portion of their income in cash. So if you think of uh, taxi drivers, um, busboys, waiters, waitresses, construction crews, so they get part of their income in cash. Um, and, and therefore, they're much less likely to use dematerialized money uh, when they go out to, to businesses to pay. But in the, in the outside of these historically rich countries, in much of the rest of the world, uh, cash is a lot more prevalent. So in India, for instance, only 8% of the population gets their income wired onto a financial institution account, onto a bank account. So the immense majority uh, of people in India get their wages in cash. And at a global scale, it's about 50% of workers get their income in, in, in cash. It's interesting. Um, I've Because as I earlier, said earlier, I've been reading about this and 
Uh, it's interesting the way some governments have responded. In, in the United States, uh, there's some uh, local governments that have looked to to ban this type of thing. In other cases, you've got some you know states you've uh, that are looking to try to go completely cashless. Sweden is kind of leading the charge yeah. in terms of going uh, yeah. almost completely cashless in a couple years. Uh, is, is this something governments should be looking at, or is this something where you know for some businesses maybe it makes sense, for other businesses maybe it doesn't, and is this just kind of like the market to decide right so um there's definitely some some uh, regulation issues here so from a government perspective um i think they want to preserve business so they want to keep business going and for whatever industry whatever businesses um if their practices are more amenable to spending cash, governments probably should legislate and will legislate in favor of those small businesses. But in the, in the case of Sweden, for instance, uh, governments also worry about fiscal policies, right? So since it's a lot harder to evade taxes with dematerialized money because those transactions get recorded outside of Bitcoin, um, they want to get their piece of the pie. Um, now, if you look at it, why do we use cash, especially very large bills, so $100 bills, it turns out there is few explanations other than money laundering. So um, in the U.S., for instance, it's the, 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 there are several Federal Reserve banks right throughout the country, and they are the ones issuing the, the bills, uh, the denominations. So $1, $5, $10, $20, 50 100 and so on. And when you look at which... Federal Reserve banks actually are issuing the most large notes, the $100 notes. It's going to be in the regions where the drug trade is most important. So it's a great, easy way to get the money back uh, in, in, easier, uh, in easier matters. So if you were to make cash, including coins, a lot more painful to carry, to move around, a lot heavier, uh, that would also help slow the trend of money laundering. Uh, so from a government perspective, governmental perspective, limiting the use of cash is not a bad thing. Uh, it, it's going to help the, uh, the, the war on drugs, but it's also especially going to help getting your piece of the taxes by. How do you think uh, consumers would react uh, to this? Because uh, speaking just as myself, I generally, you know, you know, I don't carry a ton of cash with me. I'm, I'm more likely to go... Uh, cashless at at places where where I'm you know if I'm going to a restaurant or or any place and so I can see you know some people saying well this is how I already kind of operate already so for some maybe not a hard transition maybe for some others it might be a little bit uh, harder. Oh no, consumers I think are going to like it uh, as we go more and more digital through our devices and stuff. I think consumers are going to like it. It is indeed uh, a lot more convenient. Uh, what consumers might underestimate, however, is what I noted before. It's their loss of privacy in doing so and the invisible, non-conscious power of, of money, the physicality of money, how that influences their purchases decision, and that can play against us. Uh, using dematerialized money, as I said, is psychologically less painful when it comes to paying, and therefore you're more likely to spend more. In general, is this something maybe we as, you know, a society should be talking about more since there are obvious pros and obvious uh, cons or or at the very least things we have to consider and realize if we're going to go cashless, which seems like the way we kind of 
are going naturally anyway, but, you know, in terms of how we as communities and governments and whatever want to respond to this, maybe we should be having a, a broader discussion about it. Oh, I would agree with that. I, um, as, as a scientist, I'm, I'm of the opinion that uh, knowledge sets you free. And sometimes even knowledge won't suffice to set you free. But in this case, when, when we know through about a decade and a half now of research and experiments that the, the physicality of money, the physical forms of money can sway your behavior as a consumer, I think it's good for consumers to know about these things uh, so they can actually make better, more educated decisions afterward. It's uh, quite interesting. I uh, certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That's Rod Duclos, Professor of Marketing at Ivy School of Business. We need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. You're listening to London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. I want to talk about real estate, uh, home ownership, and uh, the home buying market for the next little while. This segment and next segment. Uh, there was an interesting study that came out the other day that said for the first time in five years, Canadians see the real estate market as balanced between buyers and sellers. Today, almost as many uh, home buyers reveal they need help and are purchasing or planning to purchase with their family as those who can purchase solo. The information was included in the annual RBC Home Ownership Poll. It was done by Ipsos. The poll found that 8 in 10 Canadians say a home or condominium purchase is still a good investment and that Canadians feel it makes more sense to buy than rent. To talk about this, we are joined by Nicole Wells, Vice President, Home Equity Financing at RBC. Thanks for your time today. Oh, thanks for having us. The real estate market's been in such focus for the past couple of years been uh, pretty hot pretty much everywhere. It's cooling down a little bit, but uh, I was intrigued to see from this poll that uh, a lot of people now think the housing market is pretty balanced between buyers and sellers. Yes, it's a bit of a change from the previous years, and buyers will have to adjust to maybe longer selling times. And it's also really good for some first-time home buyers who can take a chance to really think about what they want to do with their next home purchase or their first home purchase. There was a time when it seemed most people I knew were selling their home and they were going to renting something else instead. This poll suggests Canadians still view buying a home as the better option, which traditionally has been the better option, but it seemed we were slipping away from that for a little while. Well, it's 81% think that home is still a good investment, so that's really that's really good. I mean, people want to know that the, the money that they're putting into their home actually could potentially have a return down the road, right? Yeah, we're we're seeing a lot of people uh, maybe even buying a home solo. There's people need help from their family, which has always been the case. It it's kind of grew in importance when we saw home prices kind of really jump up there. But there seems to be a trend where some people are trying to, if they can, uh, buy a home solo if if they have the ability. Yeah, I think that really stood out to me in the survey was that um, there's a real uh, there continues to be the trend with. Family, but it's the trend to really being um, savvy about finding your next home, right? People are taking the steps back that they really need to, to look at their budget, understand how much they can afford, and then really thinking about um, how do they get there. And family seems to be one of the ways. And what's interesting, too, is there's a lot more solo buyers in the marketplace. 
Uh, there's some uh, Canadians who identify as uh, house poor. I uh, have some friends who would uh, maybe qualify as that or identify as that, maybe. Uh, on the one hand, you've got a, um, you know, a, a investment that will go up or should go up. Uh, most, in most cases, it does. But it just, it, the, the house poor uh, aspect is an interesting one. Yeah, and, you know, I think it's, to me it's a bit of a rite of passage because as you buy your first home, there is that stress and trade-off that people have to make when it comes to thinking about what they want and and the reality of, of actually jumping into home ownership hits you, right? You can't go out to dinner as much as you used to maybe. Sometimes you have a baby at the same time. So it's it's a, it can be a very stressful time. So it's really important. What we recommend is that you get advice uh, you get the right budget, you really think through the long term and not view just a buying a home as the pure rate that you get, that you actually get the advice on how to be financially well off and to get yourself out of that position of home poor. Uh, because as you can see, in, according to the survey, people say that, yeah, it, it, it tends to be a temporary spot for most people, but you don't want to be one of those people where it becomes your permanent place. No, and that's with so much everything, it's, you know, just planning and uh, and if, you know, finances can be, you know, so uh, daunting for people sometimes that uh, they don't want to think about it or they'll just try to spend as little time as possible thinking about it. If it's if it's daunting, then just get help with it so it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of digital tools as well, but one of the things that's really important is people use those tools just to try and get a sense of what they can afford. But it's really important, like you said, to get that advice. Right, um, and it's not just about home advice. It's about what does it mean for me to retire in twenty, thirty years? What does it mean for me if I have a child down the road, or what happens if um, I have an accident? How can I afford to still live in that home, and how can I have a buffer so I feel better? Right, so I feel comfortable um, in home ownership. Who's buying a home these days? Well, there's a lot of people who are buying a home. That's a bit of a tricky question. I think people who are buying a home are the ones that are, you know, they uh, for first-time home buyers, you know, getting uh, out of a renting situation or getting out of their parents' basement where they've saved some money or have access to some help from their parents. Next-time home buyers who are thinking about, you know, um, maybe I've outgrown my home. And then there's also people who are downsizing and, and thinking about well, where do I want to live next. I guess maybe if I could, uh, people aren't being squeezed out. It seems as though people are kind of coming back to the, uh, it's not just, you know, older Canadians, millennials, and and, and other age groups still uh, are in that buy, house buying mix. They are. I think affordability is really on people's minds, though. When you come to buying a home, you know, you feel it. And, I'm sure, and I know in your market as well, in London, it, it it can feel expensive to buy a home, so that's where that's what our our, our survey is saying is that people are taking the time. They're thinking, okay, what ha- will happen to housing prices? Is now a time to buy? So they're really just taking a little bit of a pause. Yeah, the the affordability being uh, key, and it's interesting what people are willing to sacrifice in terms of maybe finding that right fit. In terms for some people, it's transit; other people, it's being uh, close to a highway. Other people, yeah. it's schools. Everyone's got their own, you know, must-haves. That's right. And uh, you, that's one of the biggest things is when you start to buy a home is to really do that inventory about what's important to you and what you're willing to sacrifice. Because I haven't met a person <laughs> who hasn't had to say, I'm going to give up this, right? Because buying a home is important to me. So making sure you know yourself, what you can afford, 
you know, you have your budget and maybe test drive it in the, like, if you want to live in a specific neighborhood, and we have a tool called Neighborhood Explorer that can help uh, people figure out what neighborhood they want to be in and how much it would cost, then you can set your budget and, and, and try it out for a little while to make sure you're okay. There's so much more data available to people these days. It's uh, maybe there's a lot, maybe more choice because of that data, but you can make a better choice because you can maybe uh, fine tune exactly what you want to what you want in a uh, in a home. Exactly, Nicole. I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That's uh, Nicole Wells from RBC. The the poll was an interesting one. Just as I said off the top uh, with Nicole Wells, uh, just in terms of the way people have viewed. Uh, the home buying market in this country, as uh, if you take the entire country as a whole, uh, it's been people viewed it as, you know, maybe not as affordable as it once was, you know, certainly five years ago. Starts to change maybe a little bit now as we see as many people saying it's a buyer's market as a seller's market. The whole idea of, you know, leaning on uh, family for some help, that's always been there. Yeah, it happened in the seventies. Happened in the sixties. Happened in the nineties. It's it's always been around. It's it seems as though recently, though, it's been a bit more pronounced in terms of the maybe the amount people are asking, or to the degree which people are asking for help from their family. But that's always been there. The, the poll, I just frankly thought was an interesting one in terms of uh, you know affordability. It's a huge issue for people being in a safe neighborhood. Obviously, that has always been a constant. Buying the right neighborhood is less of a concern for people, making sure you're in a safe neighborhood as opposed to the right neighborhood. And that's always, you know, depending on you and what you consider to be the right neighborhood or a safe neighborhood. Uh, But Canadians are willing to, as we were talking near the end, they're willing to sacrifice conveniences of being close to a major highway, dining and entertainment, uh, good schools, public transit. For all the talk we've had in the city of of transit, say what you will about whether, even if you don't use it, I always, you know, look at, you know, houses in terms of, uh, you know, schools and transit. I don't, uh, I'm not a regular transit user. I'm not a, I don't have kids. (laughs) I don't have kids in school uh, by extension of that, but a good uh, a good neighborhood with good schools helps when you want to resell that. And certainly a transit in London will help with us in the future in terms of uh, moving forward. So something to keep in mind, just in terms of the larger transit conversation, which is uh, not ending in London anytime soon, even though a decision on BRT has been made, but that is a different kind of topic, and we are not going to make everything about BRT in this city. We need to pause. We come back. We'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to London Live. We were just talking to uh, Nicole Wells from RBC about their annual home ownership poll. Home ownership is something uh, governments have been looking at uh, lately, looking for ways to make it more affordable for the next generation. There have been lots of stories of families helping prospective uh, buyers with their purchase. That's something that's always happened, only now it's just taking place in a more pronounced way. More people doing it, maybe larger figures involved. But that's something that's been around, I'd I'd say, uh, for a while. 
Uh, The poll found Canadians now view the market to be evenly split for buyers and sellers. Is that the case in London? We've been bucking some national trends lately. Earl Taylor is the president of LSTAR, the London St. Thomas Association of Realtors. He joins us now. Thanks for your time today. Thank you very much, Devin. Glad to be here. Uh, just to, to look at the housing market for London and St. Thomas as kind of an overview, how does it look right now? I know it's, it's spring and this is uh, getting into a bit of a busier season uh, for uh, prospective uh, sellers and buyers. Kevin, uh, in our March release, I, I said that March came in like a lamb and went out like a lion, and really our market has sort of followed suit with that. It has been very strong through the first quarter of the year, especially in March. How does what we see locally compared to nationally, because obviously housing and buying a home has been in the news a lot over the past couple of years, but London's had a really hot market, and, and nationally we've seen maybe some declines, but London stayed pretty hot for uh, longer than we've seen elsewhere. Yes, you're absolutely right. London seems to have outperformed the market across Canada, and you know, you've probably seen some of the statistics showing that other areas of Canada have fallen, their sales have fallen, listings have fallen, and uh, London St. Thomas seems to be exactly the opposite of that. We have saw, saw a uh, increase in resale homes um, through the first quarter, about 6%, and uh, March has been up 14.5% so far this year. What do you attribute that to? Obviously, uh, people view this as an attractive uh, market, but uh, what is uh, some of uh, what's pointing uh, people towards uh, London St. Thomas? It's because we are a little further removed from the London, the GTA, the uh, the, uh, Toronto, Hamilton, Kitchener, Waterloo area. We're just a little further away than those markets that are getting affected. But I think that um, London has a great economy, a great workforce, um, our medical system, financial system, our business environment seems to be very strong, and our workforce is uh, very talented, so I think that is helping our area a lot. There was a, a poll that was just done uh, by RBC about home ownership, had some interesting uh, things. I mean, one of the, I mean, they had a lot of different uh, results. Uh, one of them was, uh, which I, I I was glad to see was more people are valuing buying as opposed uh, to renting. It seemed as though there seemed to be a lot of people who might be going the renting route, but people still viewing uh, buying a home as the way they wanted to go. Are, are we seeing people take different approaches these days to buying a home, or or is there such a thing as a traditional approach to buying a home? I have not seen any of the non-traditional uh, ways of buying a home in our market happening, it seems to be most people have got their down payment. They're going through the normal financing condition. But I believe that, yes, the purchase of a home versus renting is very, very strong in our area. What should people know when they're buying a home? I would recommend two things, that they, first of all, connect with a realtor and get the details and the facts on what is out there what's available to them and what they can afford. Not necessarily what they um, desire, but what they can afford. And then uh, second would be to connect with a financing, a bank or a mortgage broker and get themselves pre-approved so that they are not disappointed when they do find what they think is their perfect home, but they find the home that they can actually afford. Do you find sometimes when people are looking to, to buy a home 
They uh, what they end up wanting in the end is a little bit different than what they say at the beginning in terms of uh, refining exactly what they're looking for in, in something they want to buy? I think our buyers are very, very smart in that there's so much technology available for a buyer. Certainly, they can go on to realtor.ca and find exactly the house they're looking for, all the features and the facts and the figures. And, and uh, when they connect with us, most buyers have already figured out what they like. So we're narrowing it down to a number of homes, and away we go, uh, rather than you know spending a whole bunch of time trying to figure out what they like. Most buyers exa- know exactly what they like. Would you expect some of the market conditions we've seen in London St. Thomas to continue or, or how do you, how do we forecast kind of what's to come next? Yeah, I don't see any change happening. I think our area is still so strong. Our market growth that we were just talking about is still very, very popular, very, very good. So I think that, and it's hard to tell for sure, but I believe that we're going to continue on through the rest of 2019 in a very strong position. Earl, I uh, certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. I hope that helps, Devin. Thank you very much. That is Earl Taylor, president of LSTAR, the London St. Thomas Association of Realtors. It has been really interesting just to see how the London market has progressed over the past, you know, couple of years, you know, three years, maybe even as many as five, if you want to go back that, that long, uh, just in comparison to the rest of the country, you know, uh, housing prices have, have gone up in London, obviously, but still uh, pretty affordable compared to the, you know, other parts of the country, other parts of the province and um, uh, a good, a good bargain. But it's, uh, it's interesting that that home ownership question and one of the pieces that we were talking about with Nicole Wells' last segment in terms of buying versus renting. There might be a time in your life where, you know, renting is better than buying, but it seemed as though there were a lot of people who were trending in the renting direction rather than buying. So the fact that people now seem to be dipping and showing up in the polls anyway more in terms of buying as opposed to renting, I thought uh, was interesting just because it's a little bit different than what we've been hearing and seeing recently on this issue. We need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. That is it for the first hour of the program. We've got a lot more coming in the second hour. We will be talking about technology and schools and the role it plays in educating our kids. We'll talk about misinformation about vaccines and what the Ontario Medical Association is doing to combat that. We'll also check in with Mike Stubbs before he leaves for Guelph today about what we can expect with the Knights and Storm in Game 4 of their series tonight, which you can hear on 980 CFPL, by the way. All of that and more coming up in the second hour of the program. You're listening to Devin in for Mike on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program, everyone. This is London Live and Devin Peacock in with you. A new report says just 5% of students on average per high school in Ontario are currently enrolled in e-learning courses and some struggle with the independence needed for them. 
The People for Education report on technology in schools comes shortly after the provincial government announced that all high school students will have to take four e-learning credits starting in 2020-2021. The survey found that at least some students are enrolled in e-learning in 87% of schools. However, in those schools, only about 5% of students are taking those courses. Principals reported that students are keen to sign up for e-learning courses, but at times struggle with the self-discipline these courses require. Research has shown that the lowest achieving students perform worse in online courses than in face-to-face classes. To talk about this, we are joined by Annie Kidder from People for Education. Thanks for your time today. No problem. I read the report on technology in Ontario schools. It covers a lot of ground, talks about e-learning, bringing your own device, equity, and cell phones in class, lots of items. I guess just to start, is the province taking the right steps to prepare students for a digital future? Well, that that is a great question, and that actually probably is the question we should be asking. I think it is important that to know that technology is being used widely in in Ontario schools, and and for many many purposes. There are kids in classrooms that are collaborating with kids across the world. There are you know amazing uses of new um, apps and new capacities to I don't know you know animate a film or to make a report that's uh, using, you know, a whole class collaborating together online. So, um, and technology is obviously here to stay, a huge part of all of our lives, and it's really important that we're providing students with the, the wide range of competencies and skills they need to use that technology, not just access and not use it, kind of physically use it, but to understand um, what to do with all of the information that floods into their phones every day to maybe understand the difference between fact and what your so-called friends are saying on Facebook, things like that. These are, these are the new basics. These are the core competencies and skills all kids need. So, you know, yes, there are many things being done about this, and it is important that we're moving forward. And I think the, you know, the provincial government recognizes this, and that's been part of their you know, they have said there needs to be more broadband. Maybe we need to make sure that all boards across the province have um, access to just be able to get online easily and quickly um, so that we can use this, you know, sometimes wonderful and sometimes a nightmare of a new resource. <laughs> uh, the report found 5% of students on average per high school are currently enrolled in e-learning uh, courses and some struggle with the independence that's needed for them. Thinking back to my time as a student, I can identify with how that might come to be. How should we treat e-learning in the classroom? Well, I think that, you know, what we've done is kind of raise a little note of caution that there is a huge difference between 5% of kids enrolled and 100%, which is what the government is proposing. Um, and it's not that it's wrong or bad. It's just that we really need to make sure that we understand the educational purpose for it and that we've talked to experts. Experts are important in these conversations. So we have lots of fabulous uh, universities with faculties of education in them in Ontario. We need to talk to those people to understand what they have learned about um, whether or not there are some students who thrive with e-learning and some students who don't or what kinds of support students need to make sure that we're not making this move 
you know, too quickly or without quite enough thought because, again, it, that will be a huge change in the system. So we, we need to think about it. It's not wrong, but we need to make sure we've thought about it carefully. And then when, before we move forward, that all of the, the resources, the supports are in place, maybe an aspect of choice so that maybe all students, uh, you know, maybe we make exceptions for students who might struggle a bit with online learning. It's difficult because, you know, everyone learns differently. So for some, it might be really beneficial. For others, not so. Like me, when I was back, you know, it was a while ago now, but, you know, if I ran into some, you know, uh, uh, an obstacle and I couldn't get around it, there would be frustration. Uh, Math was not, you know, my strong suit. But if the answers were in the back of the book, I would be, you know, tempted to look in the back. And if I didn't have to show my work, (laughs) I would move on. So, you know, but so I, I, I can see how this could work for some, but it might not work for others. And it might not even work for all courses. I mean, I, I have a daughter not to out my... I will now, though. Um, <laughs> she's lovely, and she's just going to go to graduate school. But she took one course um, through e-learning, and she basically just did as little as possible. I was like, I have to pass this course. I'm just going to take it this way. Great, now I'm done. So then you have to question whether or not um, this is the best way to engage all students too. Now there are there are examples of uh, you know courses that happen online. I'm putting that in quotation marks up north where there are you know there are screens. Kids are connected uh, you know who are miles and miles away, and there's a teacher there live. So that's one kind of model of online learning. Then there is the you know what in the olden days would seem like a correspondence course. But we have to think about are there some courses where it's vital that. Um, we have the teacher there present, that the relationship between teachers and students is incredibly important, and that and there's discussion, and te- kids are talking in class. So we, we have to, again, it's not a full flick of switch, and everybody will be doing this. Where, where are the courses where it might work? And as you said, are there students for whom it, it may not work at all? Or for those students, do they need something else once a week, a class that... Uh, supports the learning in a different way. I don't know the answer to that, but I think it's important that we we find out all the answers before we move forward. And and technology in the classroom is an interesting one as well in terms of, you know, schools and uh, that encourage kids to bring their own device, uh, cell phones that, uh, you know, from I was reading from from this report, you know, some teachers report, you know, there there can be some difficulties in terms of uh, attention and maybe kids get distracted, but also there's positives with it as well. And so it's an interesting kind of balancing act in terms of uh, the use of technology in the classroom to further that learning. Well, yeah, and again, it goes back to the sort of big picture context, which is that technology is here to stay, um, and we use it all the time, but are we using it well? Are we using it wisely? And do we have the, the, the skills to understand how to use it? That is really important that that's being taught in school. And we were surprised that in, in high schools, two-thirds of schools, in two-thirds of schools, they have a BYOD, they call it Bring Your Own Device Policy, every day. So it's being used in classrooms every day. These are phones or um, uh, tablets or computers. But teachers are using them because they're, they're part of everyday life. Now, I am not saying they're not sometimes a distraction. Maybe we should ban them in restaurants, for instance. <laughs> I mean, we are all guilty, adults, kids, whoever, of looking at our phones too much, being addicted to our phones, feeling like we have to be, you know, chatting with our friends every single second. So for teachers, I'm sure sometimes it's hellish to manage, but just saying 
we will eradicate these from our lives while we're in school. I, I just don't think it's possible. But, and there are, I mean, teachers are using them to great effect. So how do we make sure that that's there? And maybe, who knows, that will teach students to be more responsible because it's like I get to hold on to and look at my precious phone, but I'm using it for school. So, you know, it's even cooler in that way. You know, so I think that that's the thing that we need to do is look at, you know, how we can use technology to advance learning in all ways. When we look at all of this, and I, I don't mean this government in particular, but what do governments kind of get wrong about education legislation? Because, like, <laughs> the, the, the politicians change, but, you know, the government itself kind of stays and the structure's there. So, like, I, I wonder if, like, the whole conversation we have about this maybe needs to be altered in some fashion. Well, I, it, that, that's also a great question. And I think often people say, what get, what 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 what's done wrong is the implementation. So you can have a really great idea. You can write a very beautiful policy that makes total sense, you know, on your computer screen or in the abstract. But when principals and teachers are faced with maybe five different policies coming down at the same time, some of which may conflict with each other, then that's where the problem lies. So sometimes it's in where the rubber hits the road. Sometimes it's in a desire to do things too quickly, even though I know education is really frustrating because it does move slowly. But it's, it's, it's saying, you know, it shall be so very quickly. And even the, the e-learning is an example where the idea is to implement this or begin to implement this in the fall of 2020, well, in educational terms, that's quick. That's a year and a half to really find out all about it and to make sure that we have all the pieces in place. So I think it's often in the implementation. And there, you know, to be honest, there's a lot of politics in education too. So new governments get elected. All governments do this. Nobody's more, you know, guilty or better than the other one. And they want to change things and put their kind of stamp on it. So there's, it's that combination. And then we have to just be really, really careful about how this is being implemented. And also, have we thought through what are our goals altogether? It, because this is about the whole next generation of society. We are counting on these people to deal with the mess that we've created of the world. And, and you know, so we, we really need to think through what are the things all students should know. Um, the world has changed massively. How are we ensuring we're preparing them all for a very complex future where they'll have you know, many different jobs where they need to be able to keep on learning, where we're not going to be able to train them for one thing. So those are the kinds of overall things we have to think about. And then and we have to think about policy first and then funding, which is often hard when, you know, this government was elected and, you know, promised to, to balance the budget. So, you know, it's looking at places to quote-unquote, find efficiencies. But it's important to think about what are we trying to do first and then how do we fund it. It's an interesting conversation, Andy. I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That is Annie Kidder from People for Education. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on London Live. I'm really interested these days in how we talk about issues as much as the issues themselves. We are letting our differences define us and separate us, and it's not right. Reasonable people can disagree. We can disagree without being disagreeable, and yet all we seem to be doing is being disagreeable. 
The issue of vaccinations is an important one for me. I believe in them. I think they're important. And unless you have an allergy to something inside a specific medication or vaccination, I would strongly urge people to get vaccinated and vaccinate your family. All of that said, I'm not going to call people idiots if they don't vaccinate their kids. Opposition to vaccination has been around for over 100 years. You can look it up. It's not new. What is new is how misinformation about vaccinations is spreading. And it's spreading online. The Ontario Medical Association has begun a campaign to correct that. Dr. Nadia Alam is the president of the OMA. She joins us now to talk about this. Thanks for your time today. Thank you for taking the time to have me on the show today. Opposition to uh, vaccinations isn't something it's that's new. It's been around for a long time, but it seems as though there's um, more urgency to that opposition now than five, ten years ago has made uh, somewhat of a resurgence. Yes, definitely. Um, there's a lot more misinformation that's circulating, and it's really clouding the issue for parents who I genuinely believe want to make the right decision for their kids. The OMA represents and speaks for 31,500 practicing physicians across Ontario, and many of us have seen in our practices um, the number of questions about vaccine, the doubt about vaccine go up. And so that's why we're speaking up to get the facts out there. What's what's your response when you hear someone, you know, maybe if you're at a, I don't know if this would happen, but if in, the, in the fictional situation, <laughs> of like you're at a party, someone's talking about how, and they don't know you're a doctor, say, and they're talking about how they don't trust vaccines or don't like vaccines or they're concerned about vaccines. What's kind of your, your initial reaction when you hear someone express some of those concerns about vaccines? So the biggest thing is to try and engage them in a conversation. If, um, if you try and be too confrontational, if you try and be aggressive, they're going to turn off. They're going to stop listening to you. And the goal is to try and change their mind, to get them to think of it and see vaccines in a different way. Um, so that's the first step, is establishing trust enough to have an actual mutually respectful conversation. It seems, you know, we, a lot of people fall into that trap. It's emotional for people who maybe have some questions about vaccines. It's emotional for people who uh, do, uh, you know, believe in vaccines and get the kids vaccinated because they're worried about the ramifications of it all. And I find uh, so often I, I see a lot of people, uh, they get angry in these exchanges. They One side calls the other side an idiot or stupid or something like that, and that doesn't help yeah. at all. Absolutely. You've, you've hit the nail on the head there, Devin. It's really important that there's mutual respect for both sides on both sides of the issue, because if we can't have a conversation about the facts, parents are just going to be even more confused and will be unable to make a good decision for their children. Parenting itself is an incredibly emotional time, um, particularly new parents or particularly parents of young children. So it's important to make sure that we're not putting them on the defensive. We're not making them feel belittled in any way. We're welcoming questions. We're pointing out misinformation. We're pointing out the facts. What is uh, the OMA, just to you know, jump off of that, what is the OMA doing to combat some of that misinformation? So the OMA has become a, begun a social media campaign um, on vaccines. We've got a vaccine fact sheet out there. We've got section, the section of allergy and immunology talking about vaccine allergy. We've got members who are writing in op-eds and letters to the editor talking about vaccines and why it's so important to vaccinate your children. The big thing is vaccines are a victim of their own success. A lot of the illnesses that we vaccinate against, we don't see them as often anymore. So people have forgotten how serious those illnesses are. 
and how safe vaccines are by comparison. And, uh, and it's important to get that information out there so that people can go and make sure their vaccinations are up to date. A lot of the vaccines aren't one-time deals. Many of them require boosters. And so we need to make sure that patients get out there and talk to their doctors about their vaccines. You, you touched upon this a little bit there, but what should people know about vaccinations? The biggest thing that people should know about vaccinations is that they're very safe. Millions of children around the world have been vaccinated and have been protected against many, many diseases. Your immune system can handle multiple vaccines in a visit. And in fact, the number of antigens in a vaccine that trigger your immune system to protect your body against disease, the number of antigens in a vaccine are actually less than the common cold. So that's something as well. The other thing that I would ask people to take away is the diseases that vaccines protect against can be very, very serious, can in fact have life-threatening complications, can have devastating, um, disabling complications. And so it's really important to prevent them in the first place, and that's what vaccines do. What are some of the biggest myths you see? One of the biggest myths that I see is that the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine causes autism. And there is absolutely no connection between the MMR vaccine, so the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, and autism. Decades of study have proven that. Um, and and that's, an information, that's misinformation that continues to persist and plays on the fear of parents, really. It's, you know, it's interesting. I, I was listening to someone uh, talk once and they were saying one of the reasons they think we've seen, you know, a resurgence a bit lately in terms of uh, people questioning vaccinations is there's not as many people who go to a family doctor or they go as regularly. And so when you have that relationship with your doctor, there's someone you can trust, you can lean on for this type of information. And if people don't go to their doctor as much, you kind of lose that resource. And they thought that was maybe not the reason, but a, a factor in all of this. And it certainly could be. The relationship that I've built up with my patients where I've treated them, I've helped them, I've held their hand through difficult circumstances, illnesses, that sort of thing, um, has built up a lot of trust in the bank that patients can draw on later when I tell them something that, um, that addresses a controversy that's out there. They're more likely to trust me than they are what they're hearing from from social media, for example. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you know, the medical uh, inst- institution as a whole could be some, you know, murky, murky you know, uh, cabal. But if it's you have that, you know, I don't believe that. Um, um, but it, but if you have that, you know, relationship with one person, okay, well, that person, you know. Uh, is not part of this cabal that I've built up in my head, so to speak, yes. in this fictional yes. sense. I'm not trying to disparage anybody, but um, I, I could see... No, you're right. I could see you have that personal, right. the, you know, the personal you know, connection. Yeah, and I mean, that personal connect- connection, that doctor-patient relationship, that continuity of care, which is the official term for that relationship that builds up over time as a doctor sees a patient... It has many, many benefits um, on chronic illnesses, on the health of the patient, uh, all of that. So it's actually worth it to develop that relationship with your doctor, to have a doctor, to develop that relationship, and then to nurture that relationship over time by mutually respecting and trusting one another. Do you think this is something that we can reverse? I think... 
that sunlight is the most powerful disinfectant out there. And I think the best way to get rid of misinformation is to shine a light on it and not to shy away from it. It's to actually take it head on and say, this is what people are saying. These are the real facts. And use facts to make your decision. We depend on science for everything from electricity to heaters to smartphones. Science is what created vaccines. The reason we don't see polio anymore is because of vaccines. The reason we don't see smallpox anymore is because of vaccines. The hope is to eradicate other vaccine-preventable illnesses by using vaccines. And if people want some information or they want to uh, see some of the information that the OMA is putting out there, how can they do that? So they can go to oma.org or ontariosdoctors.ca. There's a lot of information that we've put up about vaccines. They're simple, they're digestible, they're easy to tweet out if they're on social media or you post to Instagram if they're on social media and share with friends and colleagues. They're freely available. Again, the goal is to get as much good information out there to combat the misinformation that's out there. Dr. Alam, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Devin, for another great interview. That is Dr. Nadia Alam, president of the Ontario Medical Association. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. We are into the final 30 minutes of the program. Thanks for tuning in. I want to talk about organ donation for a little while. April is, after all, Be a Donor Month in Ontario. Currently, there are more than 1,600 people in this province waiting for an organ transplant. However, as of December 31st of last year, just 43% of the people living in London had registered their consent for donation. As of Monday... There were 50 people in London waiting for a medically urgent organ transplant. Last year, 36 people in London received a life-saving organ transplant. To talk about this, we are joined by Versha Prakash, Chief Operating Officer at the Trillium Gift of Life Network. Thanks for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you, Devin. Well, I'm I'm always interested in, uh, you know, organ donation, tissue donation, and how we're doing. Uh, It's a a pretty frequent uh, topic in this country, and certainly London, uh, with our uh, medical background, we uh, discuss it uh, quite a bit. In terms of London, uh, how is London doing in terms of uh, organ and tissue donation? London has a registration rate of 43%. Uh, and that's well above the provincial average registration rate of 33% in Ontario. And so London's doing really well. Uh, our goal is to have the majority of Ontario residents uh, registered. And so we have communities in Ontario like North Bay that has a registration rate of 57%. So definitely room for improvement for London, and we encourage all residents of London to visit beadonor.ca where they can register or make sure that they are indeed registered if they're unsure about that. Are you able to, to tell what separates some communities in terms of why, you know, one community might be at, at 57%, one's at 43 and others would be uh, less than London if we're above the provincial average? What, you know what kind of separates different communities in terms of organ and tissue donation? Uh, some of the things that uh, might uh, separate those communities 
for example, is the um, uh, advocates that might be in that community that are promoting uh, organ and tissue donor registration. North Bay has a very long history of active support in the community. Um, we also find that smaller and more rural communities where there is a greater sense of uh, community spirit and people know each other, uh, we find registration rates are higher uh, versus more urban communities uh, with diverse uh, cultures where registration rate may be lower. London, it uh, wasn't too long ago that we had a registration rate uh, just below 30%. That was in 2011. We've gone up, obviously, as you said, since then. What do you think is some of the reasons uh, for uh, for that increase? Well, Trillium Gift of Life Network has uh, worked uh, hard with its partners to make registration really easy. So in uh, 2011, for example, online donor registration was launched, so people can register online at beadonor.ca in literally two minutes. Also, uh, in partnership with Service Ontario, we ensure that all uh, Ontarians, when they're going to renew their health cards or driver's license, are prompted and given the opportunity to register. Do you find if people are willing to donate organs, they would also donate tissue, or do people view those separately? Um, our uh, experience shows that most people, like about 85% of people that do sign up to be uh, donors, actually give consent to both organ and tissue donation, and uh, about 15% of people actually exclude certain organs and tissues. The, the only reason I ask is because having done, you know, interviews on this issue in the past, you know, we, we focus a lot on organs and I've, I've seen recently there's more of a push for tissue and it kind of lags behind organs a little bit. So I'm just curious about the, uh, you know, the disparity between the two. Most people, when they do make a decision to donate, they do sign up for both organ and tissue donation. I think tissue donation is perhaps less known than organ donation, so people can't, may not appreciate that uh, while one donor can save up to eight lives through organ donation, they can enhance as many as 75 lives through the gift of tissue, which uh, could include donating eyes, uh, bone, skin, heart valve, which uh, can be very helpful to many Ontarians who are in need of tissue transplants. I'm sure you get this question all the time in terms of opt-in versus opt-out. We had, you know, there's a, a piece in the news last week about this. Um, wh- where do you come down on the, the opt-in versus opt-out uh, policies for organ donation? Experience and evidence has shown that presumed consent as a strategy alone doesn't necessarily translate into more organ donations. Uh, Spain one of the leaders in the world in organ donation, while they do have an opt-out system, they credit their success to a very comprehensive network of hospitals and uh, their focus on donation by having very trained donation physicians and specialists to their success. In Ontario, we've implemented many of these leading practices that have led to increases in donation and transplant So presumed consent by itself doesn't necessarily translate into more organ donations. You kind of touched upon this a little bit earlier in terms of, you know, why we see some disparity in terms of uh, communities. And 
uh, donating, but what are some of the reasons people decide to donate uh, organs and tissue? Uh, ability to save lives. Organ and tissue donation can save uh, eight lives, enhance as many as 75 others by registering. They also ensure that their families um, aren't uh, burdened at end of life and their families know what their loved one's uh, wishes are and can honour them. It's um, it, We have over 1,600 Ontarians that are waiting for life-saving transplant and every three days someone dies. Um, while waiting, and so registration is a way to uh, save and enhance lives, and especially April, given that it is the donor month in Ontario, uh, for those that haven't registered or need to learn more, they can easily do so at beadonor.ca. We've, you know, seen, you know, the registration rate go up in, in London in particular since 2011, but it just... Uh, maybe is, is it fair to say it just seems this way, but is it fair to say that we're just talking about, you know, organ and tissue donation more now than we were, say, 10 years ago? Definitely. It is. Uh, we found that we are um, changing the culture of donation in Ontario. Uh, more people are aware of the opportunity to donate, and so we're definitely talking more. And we've also made it very easy for people to register and through Service Ontario centres, we're creating a lot of uh, trigger points for uh, Ontarians to register. Recently, the federal government uh, did communicate that they will allow people to or facilitate registration through filing of tax returns. So donation is becoming more normalized. It's seen as part of a routine part of end of life. It is uh, Be a Donor Month, as uh, we've uh, been um, talking about here. If people want more information or if they'd like to maybe uh, sign up and be a donor, where can they go and where can they get that information? So at beadonor.ca, people can learn more about donation or they can register. And if they're unsure whether they have registered, they can check their registration status as well. It's an important... It literally Sorry? takes two minutes to do so. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's a, it is an important issue. I, I certainly appreciate you joining me today to uh, talk about it. Thank you so much, Devin. That's Versha Prakash, Chief Operating Officer at the Trillium Gift of Life Network. We need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike on 980 CFPL. You're listening to London Live, Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs once again. Mike's on the road with the Guelph Storm as they uh, look to close out the series with the Storm, leading 3 nothing. Uh, we uh, uh, have been able to drag Mike in here just before uh, they leave uh, for, uh, for today's game. Uh, Mike, uh, first off, thanks for taking a couple minutes here. Thanks for doing the show. I've been enjoying it as always. Well, I mean, I've it's, it's easy to do it when the Knights are winning. Uh, when when they're losing, you think, oh, gosh darn, you know, well, why even bother? Let's just, you know, let's mail it in. But it appears to be what the well, Storm have done. Boom, boom. Uh, I mean, and the Knights haven't lost a game yet in the playoffs. Uh, with Windsor, you could see that coming. With Guelph, not so much. No, no, not at all. Uh, Jake Jeffrey and I do a podcast called Around the OHL where we seem to show off what we don't know about the OHL because <laughs> coming into this second round, there was no way that anybody thought London or Guelph would have a 3 nothing series lead, that 
this one, yeah, could go either way, but not this this way. Not three games to none after the first three. And the other series are kind of doing similar things. So, yeah, this this has been a little bit of a surprise. And I really think it's a lot of what the London Knights are preventing Guelph from doing and what Guelph themselves is just not doing. Yeah, well, I mean, people would ask me, you know, well, who do you think is going to win? I'm like, oh, jeez, I don't know. I mean, it's like London's, you know, top team in the West, but Guelph's pretty good, and the top four teams are pretty good. But uh, what are you seeing from Guelph that um, is leading to this deficit? Because it's quite quite the gulf. Well, I think Guelph is a team that builds off their own momentum. If you allow the Guelph Storm to have a couple of things go right, it's kind of like when you have that day that starts off pretty even keel, but then something happens, something goes right. You go to the mailbox and you know, there's a free gift card for a chocolate cake in there. That's that's a thing that goes right. And then you go to work and somebody says, hey, nice shirt. And you feel, wow, this this day is going well. That's the Guelph Storm. And if they can have things go their way, they tend to feed off it. And they've been that way since adding a lot of players at the trade deadline. And that hasn't been happening. The London Knights have not allowed that to happen. The Knights have scored some pretty key goals early in games. They haven't allowed Guelph to lead. They haven't allowed them to get that cake gift certificate. Get that compliment for the nice shirt. The other thing Guelph likes to do is they like to get the puck down low because they got a lot of big guys. And they will lean on you and they will use their physical play. And then they not only have big guys, but they have big guys who are skilled like... Isaac Ratcliffe and Nate Schnarr, and these guys can wheel away from you on the boards. One minute, they're a big bruising guy. The next minute, they're this skilled guy who's darting into the slot and creating a chance. Isaac Ratcliffe did that in Game 3, rang the puck off the goalpost. So the Knights are not allowing them to have that sustained pressure. They're not allowing Guelph to lean on London because they're getting the puck out of their own zone. Dylan Hunter talked about it before the game on Monday. And the line that the players keep using is, if you don't know, don't throw. And you think, what, what is that? Are we talking about pool rules here? <laughs> what is that? And it means if you have the puck in your own zone along the wall and you don't know that you can make a safe pass up the boards, don't. Put it in your feet, and then we'll have a forward come in and help you dig it out, and then we'll move it out that way. And that seems to be working really, really well for the Knights. It's a combined effort, not just the defensemen to get the puck out of the zone, not just positioning along the wall for the forwards. This is a combined effort. Everybody gets the puck out of the zone, and then they deal with it from there. That's an interesting point because I was watching a Leaf game uh, during the regular season and Jeff O'Neill said, said during one of the in-between periods, one of the things that drives him nuts is a hockey player in their own zone trying to backhand the puck out of the zone because it always, well not always, but almost always uh, gets intercepted and it leads to a goal. And so, I mean, those little things, you know, can add up big time in the playoffs, and we're seeing that now. Well, here's a question. As you begin to work around the house, do you garden with a rubber shovel? No, you don't garden with, you're not going to dig a hole with a rubber <laughs> shovel. That's like using a backhand to get the puck around the boards. You could, but it's going to take you a long time because you're just picking off little bits of dirt. If you're using a backhand to get the puck around the boards, it's not a nice steel shovel kind of rim around the boards and good chance it's going to get eaten up and fired back at your net.
London has, as you said, scored first in every game. Uh, at the end of the, you know, the third game, Guelph looked a little defeated. And uh, at second game, like first game was pretty tight. London, I thought, was pretty strong early on, kind of led up near the end. Guelph made a push. Game two, obviously, seven to nothing was just all London. Game three, London comes out, scores a little bit. Guelph kind of fights back. But again, this kind of like seemed defeated at the end of it. If London scores early tonight... That could be the end of it for the Storm. Yeah, it's going to be something that the Knights will want to do. They'll know that Guelph, being very skilled and now very desperate, will come out again. They talked about the first 12 minutes a lot in Game 3. They had to get through the first 12 minutes. They wound up getting a power play, the Knights did, and they scored 17 seconds off that. That that couldn't have been a better case scenario. And then you just look at Evan Bouchard. Something that the team has talked about is not just what he does on the ice, but on the bench. He will keep them even keel. He's doing exactly what you want from the captain. He's boosting guys when they need to be boosted. There's a lot of stuff happening away from the game where the captain is shining through. And you have to understand, Evan Bouchard is such a smart player. You have to look back to the first goal that he scored in game number three. And it was a goal that allowed the London Knights to come back 37 seconds after Guelph had scored. So Guelph starting to get those good things happening. Here's a gift card. And they're trying to build on that. And then Evan Bouchard gets a puck along the left side of the Guelph zone. He looks up. And here's what he processes in an instant. He sees that Liam Foody and Josh Nelson have crisscrossed, basically by accident. They didn't mean to do it, but they've crisscrossed in the zone, and he noticed that the two Guelph defenders kind of got mixed up as to who they were supposed to take. And he thought, wait a minute, that gives me a chance just to beat one guy instead of trying to go through two here. And so he made a move, and he beat that one guy, and he was able to get to the net And in his brain, he's thinking, all right, when Anthony Popovich moves from his right to his left, he tends to lift his stick a little bit off the ice sometimes. I'm going to try and go five hole and put it between his legs. And that's exactly what he did. Processed all of that in seconds and scored a big goal for the London Knights. So that's the kind of stuff that's going right for the Knights because of players like Evan Bouchard. He led them in uh, points last season. Might have done it again this year. Had he not spent time in the (laughs) NHL, he's leading them in scoring now in the playoffs, which is something that defensemen aren't supposed to do, but he's doing. He has 18 points so far, and they're not quite through two rounds. Now, (laughs) the rounds haven't gone very long. Who knows what we're going to get tonight in game number four. This series could be extended, but the record for most points in the playoffs by a defenseman, you actually have to go back to when Chris Pronger was playing for the Peterborough Peets in the OHL. It's 40, and we haven't seen that in many, many years. Chris Pronger has now gone through his NHL career, won the Stanley Cup, has retired, and is now in a front office job. <laughs> uh, pre-game tonight's at 6.30, puck drop at 7 o'clock. Uh, Mike, uh, looking forward to hearing you tonight, and thanks for coming in. Can't wait. Thanks, Devin. We need to break. We come back more of London Live. This is Devin in for Mike on 980 CFPL. You can hear Game 4 of the second round playoff series between the London Knights and Guelph Storm tonight on 980 CFPL. Mike Stubbs will have the call for you. The pregame starts at 6.30, puck drops at 7 o'clock. London leads the series three games to none. They can advance to the Western Conference Finals with a win tonight. My thanks to Rod Duclos, to Nicole Wells, Earl Taylor, Annie Kidder, Dr. Nadia Elam, Versha Prakash, and Mike Stubbs for coming on today's show. Thanks to Matt McKinnis for his work on the program. Today's audio gem is from New 
News 12 in Brooklyn. A news anchor and a meteorologist were trying to do some fun, happy talk about a poppy story out of California, and it didn't go well. Have a great day. Mike will be back with you tomorrow at 1 o'clock. Tourists say, though, it's worth it since the poppy fields are exploding with color from this year's unusually wet winter. All right, so meteorologist Mike Rizzo joining us now. I guess it was a wet, wet winter out there a on the west. They have a lot of rain, right? A pop, a pop, a pop, a pop, pop, pop I was trying popular to popular poppy, pop, popular, popular. Pop, pop. I was gonna, I was gonna say apocalypse with poppy. Where but it are you work. going with this? <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs>